Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Greetings, comrades, and uh, welcome to the Eastern Border. This episode is made specially for our listener, Ian Botriao, who wanted me to give this to you in a written form, because he's going to post it in the journal or something, but uh, life events threw me away a bit, and I decided that, hey, this material is as interesting as it possibly can. I'll be using some materials from um, the Wilson Quarterly and other computing journals for this episode, but I'm pretty sure you'll find them kind of nice and interesting, especially when it comes to Tetris and the modern-day stuff. See, in 1948, the MIT mathematician Norbert Wiener published Cybernetics, a book that heralded the coming information age. Cybernetics, according to Wiener, is, quote, the science of control and communication in the animal and the machine. Just as the human body sweats or shakes to regulate its temperature, the Roomba vacuum cleaning robot rotates and continues in a different direction after hitting a wall. In either case, both the animal and the machine use information, feedback, and control to, you know, interact with their environments and, you know, get, get stuff done. By considering animals' methods of control and communication similar to that of the machines, Wiener and other scientists were basically able to design bigger and more powerful machines. A few years before Wiener's work, British mathematician Alan Turing yeah, he used cybernetic principles to create his Turing machine, which pioneered the design of the modern computer and deciphered Enigma. And don't worry, I'll get the Soviet side here uh, soon enough. The unbreakable World War II era cipher Enigma was used by the German military, of course, but it was broken. In the wake of Turing's invention and Wiener's research, a tremendous enthusiasm for cybernetics swept the world of... of Every academia ever. Mostly America, but, you know, a lot in the West, too. The possibilities of cybernetics, it seemed, were endless. By simply posing the problem or asking the question in a way comprehensible to a logic machine, the magic <laughs> just could happen and the machine could churn its gears and produce the correct logical answer. 
In modern days, the term cybernetics has become outdated, replaced by more specific terminology in the, you know, ever-growing field. That's why we have Silicon Valley of, of this IT technology. But even in the 1950s, its limitations were evident. The emerging field of cybernetics was low. Hanging fruit for Soviet propagandists looking for a new material to demonize America. You know, as, as we do usually, declared in their headlines that, <clears throat> quote, this is the degeneration of culture in the United States of America, and, quote, science in the new service of American monopolies. In 1951, Boris Agapov, the science editor of the influential Russian magazine Literaturnaya Gazeta, and I have the number of it too, I'm, I'm be digging deep in that as well later on, stumbled upon Wiener's theory on the cover of Time magazine, Can Man Build a Superman? That was the headline. Agapov knew very little about Wiener and even less about cybernetics. But for Agapov, the article was basically a goldmine of an anti-American propaganda. Rather than reading Wiener's book, Agapov paraprised from time. The result was um, an inflammatory article that denounced cybernetics as the sweet dream of American capitalists, who aimed to use automation to neuter class-conscious workers. In the paranoia of Soviet society, which was really there, uh, both communist apparatchiks and street merchants heeded the words of the state-run media. Soon after Agapov's article was published, Lenin's state library and hulking institution that overlooks the Kremlin pulled Wiener's cybernetics from circulation. Others followed suit, obviously. The Institute of Philosophy, my own institute, uh, labeled Wiener as a philosophizing ignoramus, who basically had betitled human thought as mere math equations. In 1952, a comic appeared on, in, in the magazine Technika Maladjoze, or Technics for the Youth, depicting a dystopic New York in which big business and the military have created robot soldiers and robot gangsters and robot Ku Klux Klan men, which was all part of the America's nefarious cybernetic master plan. As if you had a cybernetic master plan for the starters, but let's not get into this one. As the media and other government agencies censored and ridiculed cybernetics, others grew frustrated. For scientists Yekaterina Shakabara and Lev Dashelivsky, the daily papers were quickly turning their life's work into a taboo subject. Yeah, these guys were constructing what became the small electronic calculating machine, MESM, the first Soviet computer. Like other Soviet scientists, Shabara and Dashelivsky faced a kind of a catch-22 situation, in, in a way, with the research. The government demanded that they criticize and destroy. Western science, while simultaneously ordering them to overtake and surpass it. Because, you know, you have to denounce the achievements of the West, at the same time you have to pull on your own. In his book, From Newspeak to Cyberspeak, Slava Gretovich writes, quote, in the murky waters of Cold War politics, Soviet scientists and engineers were caught between the cilia of the national defense and the charbidis of ideological purity. And to explain, in Greek mythology, cilia was a six-headed monster and charbidis was an inescapable whirlpool. Faced with this contradiction, Shabara, Dashlevsky, and other leading Russian scientists tried to appease both sides publishing articles that denounced Wiener's cybernetics while praising their own research, which undeniably employed the very same principles because, you know, cybernetics. They're, they're not just about to go away. 
Soviet military officers read Agapov's mockery of cybernetics with trepidation. Research into high-speed digital computers had already begun in the Soviet Union, and suddenly it was a treasonous endeavor. Researchers realized that they needed to change the language of their work in order to continue it. Instead of computer memory, they began using the term storage. Memory sounded too human, too much like the cybernetic claim of animal and machine similarity. Likewise, information was replaced with data and informational theory with the mm, statistical theory of electrical signal transmission with noise. Under this new, ideologically pure nomenclature, cybernetics remained indispensable. Soviet military researchers quietly and tractfully kept adapting cybernetic principles for their atomic, ballistic, and, you know, other missiles and anti-missile uses. With the death of our good old friend Uncle Joe Stalin in 1953, the Soviet Union entered the Khrushchev era. General Secretary Nikita Khrushchev relaxed, sorta, in a way. But, you know, if you've listened to the previous shows, he sorta relaxed the ideology of Stalin, and he created some limited space for dialogue and dissent. Scientists could now study abroad and invite foreign colleagues to Moscow. No longer having to criticize and destroy Western science, scientists celebrated cybernetics, erasing its taboo status. The Academy of Sciences began publishing a periodical, Cybernetics in the Service of Communism. I am yet to acquire this one, but I am very interested in getting some on my hands. By 1961, the government was directing the construction of computer factories. The party's central committee now envisioned a use for cybernetics beyond guiding missiles or optimizing the economy. A national computer network was formed to amass and share economic data in real time. The plan was so grandiose that the CIA created the panel to investigate it. In a 1962 memo, Arthur Schlesinger, a senior aide to President Kennedy, fretted that by 1917, the USSR may have a radically new production technology involving total enterprises or complexes of industries managed by a closed-loop feedback control employing self-teaching computers. By 1961, the government was directing the construction of computer factories. The party's central committee now envisioned the use for cybernetics beyond guiding missiles, optimizing the economy. A national computer network was formed to amass and share economic data in real time. The plan was so grandiose that the CIA created a panel to investigate it. In a 1962 memo, Arthur Schlesinger, a senior aide to President Kennedy, fettered that by, quote, 1970 the USSR may have a radically new production technology involving total enterprises or complexes or industries managed by closed-loop feedback control employing self-teaching computers. But, you know, as usual, like many things in the Soviet Union, the whole endeavor was frustrated by the glacial pace and recent attitudes of bureaucracy. Instead of using computers to increase communication and efficiency, each economic ministry individualized its computer systems, estranging itself to protect power and relevance. The result of the economy's computerization? More data than anyone knew to do with. By 1985, Soviet economic agencies produced 800 billion documents per year, 3,000 documents for each Soviet citizen. More and more paperwork had to pass through the same number of officials, creating delays and stagnation. Gerovich notes that in order to produce something as simple as a flat iron, a factory manager needed the signatures of 60, 60 different bureaucrats. The bureaucrats themselves submitted, forged or exaggerated the data to keep their superiors happy. Of the billions of documents produced, 
few, or literally of any meaning whatsoever. But yeah, many in the Soviet Union believed computers would secure their position at the top of the world. Instead, the paper morass created by the computers both revealed and exaggerated the economy's shortcomings. Information technology, once called, called in to prove the superiority of socialism, concludes Getrovich, eventually proved the ineffectiveness of the Soviet regime. But yeah, this is the history on how the Soviets got the computers. Right now, I've got with me here in the room Klavs, who is a computer engineer, and I'm gonna ask him some questions, and the next part is gonna be all about how we adapted to computers, which were our first computers, and how, well, right now, actually, why console gaming is not popular here. Because all this legacy coming from the Soviet era, up until today, is still alive right now, and um, its, it's uh, influence has stayed on what we see in computers, how we use them. And why, for example, console games are really, really not popular over here in the Baltics. Okay, but so far we have been relying on academical data about everything. This is where we come into the nice land of anecdotal evidence, which is why I've been asking all of my programmer friends for their stories, and, you know, what the crazy programmers from the late 80s, early 90s actually did. Now, it turns out I have a pal who, with his friends, while working in uh, Latnet at around 1993, they made a flight simulator game, and, you know, they're the kind of people who come to LAN parties and then they play uh, Doom 2 and tell that Mouse is a newfangled invention which is utterly useless for hardcore gamers. But yeah, the, the further on part is going to be uh, mostly about games and Eastern Europe and um, how this stuff worked out. And uh, as I believe a lot of you are gamers, and don't worry, next Stalin episode and purely historical ones will come on, but I was asked to do this computer special, so I, of course, couldn't just sit around doing nothing, so so here we go. Some elements might have, might have been uh, there in the previous episodes, but I think it's kind of important to speak about them. See, the Soviets got into this whole market really late. Although I know how I learned programming, because at one point there was a book, and the book was called Kāpēc is basicant māju saprātiņu programmēt mācīja. Or, <clears throat> how pēc is basican uh, taught māja, the common sense one, to program. It was basically a handbook for kids on how to... On how to program in BASIC, how algorithms worked, how program works, how the very basics of programming worked and everything was written uh, in uh, an, a Russian equivalent of ZX Spectrum. It came out like in 1992, just after the collapse. At that point, at that point, you see, uh, the only thing that we got was, was these very basic centers because uh, as a friend of mine who worked in this um, Riga Radio factory told me was that as he believed the reason for the collapse of the Soviet Union was the fact that instead of making a factory for motherboards of computers, they still focused on the radio parts. Because they thought that would be the future and they truly did not believe that the age of cybernetics and that um, that this newfangled computer thing with all, all this stuff could actually change the world. Well, it did, and they lost the intellectual battle that way. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, 
feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. You see, uh, well, the ZX Spectrums, once they hit the market, they were just crazy. Because those were the first computers that happened, and ZX Spectrums were brilliant 8-bit machines if I'm not mistaken, or maybe it's 16-bit. I'm not that good at computer history. Basically, they are on the same level with um, with Commodore 64 and, and stuff like that. I think they're 8-bit computers. ZX Spectrums were produced in Great Britain, and they were kind of the most popular home computer. They were the kind of computer that you plug into your wall and, and then to your television, and then you could play games through it via audio cassettes. Now, at the time, back then, there were a lot of uh, export-import rules, because a lot of countries wanted their own uh, computer industry to grow. Therefore, there were huge taxes on certain computers being imported. One of one major example here would be Spain, which uh, basically put on a major tax on any computer whose RAM was uh, smaller than, like, 16 bits, I suppose, 16 kilobits. This whole technology language is not exactly my thing, but I guess you understand the gist. So, the ZX Spectrum producers, they uh, basically just added a useless memory chip to the system so that they could claim uh, in the customs that their machine had more, more memory than it actually had and was used to. And that's, that's how they kind of uh, overcome these import, import tariffs. Now, uh, that was all in the 80s, but when the 90s came and we over here in the Soviet Union got these things, uh, we just got the licenses to build them. And right now, uh, if you'd ask enthusiasts of these old computers out there, our Soviet-built, or early Russian-built uh, ZX Spectrums and analog machines, well, they're just better than the originals. Because our guys apparently saw the blueprints and saw, hey, hey comrade, there is this chip, it doesn't do anything, how about we connect it to the rest of the plate? So yeah, Soviet-made ZX Spectrums actually have more memory than the original ones, because they made the chip actually work. And I have mentioned this on the previous episodes, but um, but again, it, it's worth noting it here that um, previously we had used shortwave radios to uh, listen to Radio Free Europe, to kind of keep in touch, and there were a lot of these blockages going on, you know. We were blocked from discussing things with other countries and hearing their own news. Uh, there were there were special radio stations uh, out on the countryside on near the east that would block out certain radio waves and patterns. So everyone turned into a radio amateur. Uh, they used to print these books for teenagers, you know, how to be a great teenager. Kind of like uh, books for scouts and, and stuff like that, except for, you know, everyday use and... Those books involve not only like how to exercise right or do things right, but how to basically how to fix your own chair. What tools do you need for? Uh, how, what tools do you need in your household for any problem? How to fix your plumbing? You know, because do-it-yourself stuff was an everyday necessity. And and one of these things that I had in this book was um, was this detail about how to weld and and fix my own small 
radio station. And I didn't really know why, because, for one, in Soviet era, there was a mandatory radio receiver at every house. It only it only played one station, it was, it was the Moscow Central one, and it sort of had to be turned on at all times. But And you had to pay for it monthly, there was a fee, and even if you removed it later on, you still had to pay fees for that one. But there were a bunch of instructions on how to make that one work, because, you know, hey, you're going to have a radio at your place, how about you fix it? So when the Soviet Union collapsed, when uh, this whole thing went down, like I said, there are a lot of people who are now adept at uh, making these radios and making these channels work. So what did the people do after this situation? Well, obviously, as the Soviet Union just collapsed, there was no longer any need for crazy experimentation with radio technology. But, but yeah, turns out the ZX Spectrum and Russian versions, they all ran on magnetic tapes. You know, the ones that you used to put in your recording machines. And if you're younger than, uh, you know, listening to tape music, then wow, I feel really old here. Anyhow, previously, when at 9 o'clock you would hear news on these pirate radio stations talking about, like, retranslating, re uh, refurbishing Radio Free Europe, right now it would be, we are now, we are now launching Contra, or something of that sort, and they just would just play the whole game in audio, and if you had a tape, a free tape in your end, you could record it, and then you could play it on your computer. So that's that's how the Soviet piracy was born. And piracy is still a huge part in this area over here. Which is the next issue that I want to talk about, and like I said, this is a more or less a special for Ion Baudriau, but I believe that this section shall be interesting to anyone who likes to play some video games now and then to understand our general issues about piracy, because yes, we in Eastern Europe are the main central of the world's piracy. Well, us in China, in a way. But actually, China pirates less due to their strict internet controls, but Eastern Europe is thought to be the hotbed of the whole issue. Yeah, I want to speak about that, and um, maybe give some advice. And Ian, I'm sorry that I didn't maybe write this out in written form, but here we go. So, I talked about the ZX Spectrums, but... Um, when it comes to console market, yeah, that's a big issue here today. And that also involves why we are such a hotbed of piracy. See, the first consoles here, at least in Latvia, and I presume that involves Baltics in general, like Estonia, Lithuania, and Russia too, and Poland to some extent, they appeared way later than everyone else. For one, I had never seen a Super Nintendo in my whole life. What we had here at first, when I was a kid, was um, was these things called gilatons, as we called them. They were a Chinese rip-up of the NES. Heck, not even of the NES. They were Chinese rip-ups of the Famicom computer, and you can tell it by the cartridges. And recently, recently I watched a uh, nostalgia game show uh, by Pat, the NES punk, I suppose, where he spoke about extra rare games, and one of these extra rare games was like second game of Flintstones. Well, I happened to have that game on my Chinese pirated cartridge for Famicom, even though it was just made in the United States of America and nowhere else and spread around just through this one uh, food chain. But it's somehow made here in a ripped off coffee, copy with uh, with this situation, and uh, and yeah. We played the NES, well, NES analogs, as like, uh, like I told you, we called them gelatons quite a lot. 
and they were the most popular system up until 1995 or so. Which is when Sega Mega Drive arrived. Approximately at that time, and that was super, super expensive. I know it's known as Sega Genesis in the United States, but over here it was Sega Mega Drive, and we got some originals even. Uh, and yeah, everyone was surprised about the price tag changes, because for the Gileton you could only buy these rip-off cartridges, there were no original games, obviously, and they cost uh, 2.5 2. to 3 lats, which is about uh, 5 euros modern-day money. Sega doubled the price tag, but hey, it was Sega, and at that time Sega just blew the NES out of the water with its depth and, and what you can do there, and that's what I played the Dune 2 first. It was, it was just amazing. So everyone played Sega with Sonic games and everything, and, and I know that the rest of the world got um, your first Sony PlayStation in 1995. Well, over here, that process went late, because literally, well, maybe very rich families did, get, did have them, but, but I didn't, certainly. And when, a, when one of my friends got one of those in 1999, then we were super surprised, and we were, like, drooling after PlayStation 2 at the, t at the same time, but that was the time when we could finally afford PlayStation 1. But yeah, the games by the PlayStation 1 era were already being patented en masse. Because not a lot of people had personal computers back then, because those were really, really, really expensive. Well, I mean, not those ZX Spectrums, but I'm talking about real uh, Pentiums, real, um, real Macs, and stuff like that. But we had learned how to pirate those games in our black market, like Lobgalit. And if you have been visiting us here, then you know what I'm talking about. And if you're still planning on visiting us, then hey, come over, I have a free room now. And uh, I'll take you to a tour personally, but... There were there were the standard contraband smuggler guys, except you know previously they went spiritic vodka, spiritic vodka, you know spir like spirits and vodka, spirits and vodka, and then sometimes cigarettes too. Then now they were like spirit vodka, cigarette disky, spirit vodka, cigarette disky. It's like spirits, vodka, cigarettes, discs, because those discs they went for three uh, three lats for PlayStation because. PlayStation games were easily remanufactured and easily redone, so everyone bought those. No one even thought about paying $60 for a video game because it was just, just too ridiculously expensive. At the same time, this uh, similar thing happened in the computer market, because once in my second grade, I got my first Pentium 2. That was an old machine, it had a 400 MHz processor, but it ran it ran first Diablo and it had two gigabytes of hard disk drive space, so it could e either either hold two four hundred megabyte games or a single big one. And my big one of choice was often uh, Disciples Two. And yeah, at, at that time they started pirating computer disks as well. And uh, all of our childhood, you know, besides running around to your friend's house to copy World uh, to copy War, War, Warcraft Two from this get to another one, or XCOM from, a, from this get to another one, was like all made up of these CDs, which contained often 300 games or more. Because they were sold in the black market, and it's like 300 old random stuff games in it. Sometimes even like rip-offs of Russian game shows, and like Russian crafted games, very, very simplistic, but hey, you, you got 300 of them in a single disc, and that's how I learned about XCOM and Civilization and like a lot of great early titles. But yeah, 
at that point, buying original games never even came into the market. What happened in the 2000s was that when, when Steam arrived, then people here actually started buying games. But then also the torrents arrived, and before torrents there were LimeWire and uh, DC Connect, I presume. Yeah. Because over here, due to the Steam's pricing policy, which I still criticize a lot, and I want people to know that, is that we are in the EU. We get the same prices for video games as the rest of the European Union. The problem is, our salaries are still way lower than that. So we wait for Steam sales, we wait for uh, Steam sales, we wait for different sort of bundles on Humble Bundle and like many other sites, because now we have actually the means to obtain the games legally through various discount sites and options like that. But early, in the early days, yeah, it was all just, you know, you bought CDs from a shady guy in the back corner of a, of a black market. The problem is, uh, the games from Russia, well, they're priced accordingly to the Russian market and Russian things, but the EU market for games is screwed up in a way that the game costs the same in France as it does here in Latvia. Therefore, to buy a game for a full price is still considered a luxury. Which is one thing that I've been trying to poke to everyone, because uh, if you want to stop piracy in video games here, you would have to lower the prices a bit. Because $60 might not mean much to, uh, to our Western audiences here, but to us over here, that is a lot of money. So, for the full price, well, uh, usually your usual gamer will just, you know, pirate some game, then play it for a while, and then later on, if he likes the game, then he might purchase it on a Steam sale. The same goes for DLCs, and I have to touch Paradox games here, because I love them very much, and uh, hey, I wasn't ParadoxCon invited to the press, but... Uh, they have a lot of DLCs, but thankfully they allow the system whereby if the host has all the DLCs, um, basically if someone in the whole party has a DLC, then everyone can use it. Therefore, what we do is that we pinch in. We basically, you know, give all of our DLCs and we buy them for one guy. Then he's the host. And then later on, we all can play with them. Which is the fun way to do it. It's kind of strange because uh, everyone thinks that uh, all of this piracy comes up from out of malice. But no, it just comes up from, from the fact that we simply do not make as much money as French or, you know, Norwegian people or whatever. But... Um, but yeah, that's the, that's the interesting part. This is why we like we like CD Projekt Red, who who understand our situation because they're from Poland and uh, they they basically have no DRM on their games. What they do is just that hey, they know that their game will be pirated, especially in Eastern Europe, and then they go like, hey, if you like that, support our product. That is kind of my philosophy with the show as well, if you think about it, because I like give my product away for free and I try to make it as good as possible. And yeah, if you don't like some episodes, well then, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> really. And uh, thanks to the Patreons that we can keep this thing floating on. Because it's not, not an easy job, especially since now I have another day job. But yeah, this was to be a history of video games and gaming in general in Eastern Europe. But we've gone down to the current situation where, where yeah, Unless Steam and other sites like that change their pricing policy, it is going to get weird. For example, I've purchased a lot of games uh, when, when, when I lived near Ludza. I have purchased a lot of games in Russia, and then just installed them in my kind of European Union accounts. 
Why? Because, you know, they charge way less in Russia. The, the, the price difference is that if you buy a Russian copy of the game, that'll set you back like 15 euros. But if you buy it here, legally through Steam as intended, it costs 60. You know, it's a, about 35 euro difference, which can, you know, last you for a whole week. I think it's a major issue which the game developers should really look at. And then we have the indie market. The indie market here in Latvia is very, very tiny. We just have a few game developers who actually try to do things, but we have a lot of people who are talented and trying to work hard on their own projects and who are just actively, actively trying to, um, you know, make it in a way. My friend Carlos just finished a school in, um, in Singapore about computer design. So, hey, he's now looking at the job, which is definitely not going to be Latvia. So even though like video games might not be uh, the most interesting part to listen to about for you guys, it's an in-depth kind of uh, description of the problems of the socio-economical kind that we have here. As we can manage our own food, we can manage our own resources, but them being an imported good is often very, very overpriced. Then again, we're a small market and not like there's any hope that some something will change, but that has formed my view on piracy. That is how the general view on piracy looks like. Basically, if it if it costs what it costs, and you can you can allow you can allow yourself to buy it, then you will. But if you won't, well, then we are quite prone to piracy things. This also extends to audiobooks, TV shows, and whatever, because we live in the era of digital goods, and the digital goods, well, they should cost the same all over the board. For some reason, they don't. <laughs> that is a that is a bit Soviet if you think about it. It's like, you know, the ruble had completely different values in Moscow and say Tula or whatever, because even though the ruble had the same purchasing power, at one place you could actually buy useful goods for it in the store, and another place the store was just empty. That way, ruble carried carried its own weight and was kind of kind of this strange metaphor for how stable the Soviet power was in any given area. So these games and these digital goods and all this piracy issue, which I have, I, I think that you have probably heard anyways, even if you don't play any games, this is how it kind of works into it, because uh, they are digital goods and they are trying to sell as digital goods for the prices that very, very, very few can afford, even though right next door to us in Russia and Belarus, they're, saying the, they're selling the exact same product for way less, so a lot of people just buy them there. And then we get punished for bringing them over. Which is, again, an interesting aspect of capitalism, because if I buy a good, uh, if I buy a good, and, and which is not, like, licensed good, like, uh, or taxed good, like cigarettes or, or gasoline, if I buy those things and illegally try to cross the border with them, then I might get in trouble. But that's video games that we're speaking of here. So if I buy a video game in Russia and then I install it on my Steam account here, then I might get into trouble. So much for teaching us Eastern Europeans in the post-Soviet bloc how capitalism works, comrades. We're trying to deal with this and it is getting better as, you know, our salaries are actually improving. It's not going to be an easy walk and I think really that the game developers should kind of more fracturalize their price market if they want to fight piracy. Because... Piracy, in my opinion, does not come from the fact that you do not want to pay for the game. Piracy comes from the fact that the game seems ridiculously overpriced for you. And you know what? 
if you can't afford the game anyways, if you can't afford this, if if you can't afford to be my patron, then feel free and, you know, dig, dig through my stuff and just write us an email and we'll, we'll probably figure something out. Products should cost as much as they do and people shouldn't really rely on and, and call non-existent sales as their own losses. Because poor students, well then, they can't probably afford the product anyways. Well, yeah, and the other thing, the final thing of, of all this situation is that, uh, of course, our internet prices are ridiculously low. Such as, you know, I pay, what, 13 euros for 115 megabits of internet speed. That that also helps. The fact that you can download anything and then just buy stuff what you actually like. Yeah, this has been a bit tiring and off script, but I promised I'd do it for Ian Badriao. I really, really hope he'll find this useful. I hope you guys, the rest of you guys, also found this useful. Next episode's gonna be up very, very soon. We're uh, changing our release schedule a bit. The book part for the Patreons is coming up tomorrow. And I hope to make two episodes next week. One of them is gonna be about the <clears throat> basis of Marxistic philosophy, because I found that great book. Then I have a lot of magazines that I'd like to cover. And then I want to further on with the Stalin series, because, hey, as we noticed in the last episode, Stalin just got power. So that's going to be really interesting. But for now, thank you for enjoying this computer game, video game special. And do свидания, товарищи. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv. And we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The eastern border salutes you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.